Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is why I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, and the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. Every week, I bring you conversations with experts and authors who share our fascination with the animals in our world. This program originated and continues for the 13th year on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. There is a podcast library with more than 700 previous shows at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other pet talk shows like Cat Chat and Good Dogs. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein recipes for cats and dogs. The show is also brought to you with the generosity of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. My guests today are author and painter, the graphic novelist Carl Stevens, with his glorious book, Penny, a graphic memoir, showing us what cats are really thinking. Carol Borden is back. She's my co-host on my show, Good Dogs. And we're going to talk about why President Biden's dog, Major, bit someone again. Whose fault was that? And Kenda Summers will be here with her book, Healing Solutions for Pet Loss, Goodbye is Not Forever. So for the very first time ever, I am interviewing a graphic novelist because I always thought, well, it's mostly pictures. There's lots of words, but mostly pictures. And how do we talk about that on radio. But along comes a book called Penny, a graphic memoir by Carl Stevens. And how could I not discuss this marvelous cat on the air? Carl, thank you so much for bringing to life in various ways a quite extraordinary cat who I think embodies everything we've always thought cats were thinking, the deep the deep thinking <laughs> cat. So well done. Oh, thanks, Tracy. It's a it's a it's an honor and a pleasure to 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 be with you. Aren't you nice? Well, you have two cats that um that they're sort of your overlords. Although in the in the notes that came with the book, that was scratched out. They're the, theoretically your cats, and one of them is actually <laughs> called Penny, and then there's Pepper. Did you? And right. This is a very philosophical cat. You're, I, I'm. It's. It's. I'm sort of overwhelmed by the beauty of the book, and I think one of the things that's hard is to look at the words when there's these just painting after painting after painting after painting. It's not like cartoons. I always thought that graphic novels were like cartoons. These are like many gorgeous paintings. And I I can't imagine mm -hmm. how much work goes into making all those paintings. Is it? It's like <laughs> 10 years worth of a gallery show. How do you do that? I mean, you, can, you must do it quickly. You're you're a famous, also cartoonist, the New Yorker and the Village Voice. You, you've you do know how to do mm -hmm. cartoons, but these are paintings. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I I I studied um, as a painter when I was in college, and um, that I mean, painting was my second love. Um, you know, I I grew up reading comics, but then, um, you know, and I went to art school, and then once I got there, I you know developed more of a love for painting and um 
I guess I just sought to combine the two um, because I've, I mean, you know, that was in the nineties and um, digital coloring really wasn't a thing. So when it came time to be a professional, um, I just decided to keep my skills that I learned as a painter and just adapt them to the comics. Well, I, and, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's I, beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, somehow comics sort of makes it seem something more black and white line drawing and not these beautifully rendered and everything's in color in this cat who's one color with, you know, mm-hmm. two eyes and a body, looks so different in all the <laughs> yeah. different paintings because you have her in extraordinary places, thinking extraordinary thoughts, encountering extraordinary <laughs> situations. And I, I don't know, mm-hmm. it just it feels rude to have them all squashed into one book. They should all be up on a wall. I feel like you'd tear the book apart, <laughs> pin it all to the wall. <laughs> when did you know that Penny was such an existentialist and such a – a dark thinker. She's sort of like a Sartre or a Camus character. She's very dark <laughs> and philosophical and kind of fatalistic. When did you realize this about her in real life? Oh, I mean, like when we first got her, I mean, she just has one of those faces that looks like it's always thinking. And she, she does this odd thing with her eyes um, when you're, when she's staring at you where she has this like searching look, you know, like when you're talking to somebody, like sometimes their eyes kind of dart back and forth. Um, it seems like pennies do that too. And um, it just seemed like she had like something going on, you know, like, what? Well, you you definitely brought and... it to life in 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 her book, yeah. Penny. Um, did you yeah. did you and I don't know if I, I think you're married, but I don't know in your partner or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Do you speak for Penny before you wrote this book? Were you vocalizing Penny? Because some of us do that, right, with our dogs and cats. We say to the other person in our mm-hmm. life, "Oh, here's what Penny's thinking," or you speak for Penny. Um, and you channel Penny. And, oh. and did you ever do that before you did the book or since? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. I got no, that. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, 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 for sure. And, you know, of course, like we still do. Um, it's, you know, it's not as um, in-depth as it is in the comics, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're always talking to the cats. Yes, I mean, like, and talking for them. I mean, talking to them, but also imagining yeah. what they're thinking. It's really terrific. It's oh, like yeah. going deep into a cat psyche. So it's the cat psyche about this life where she's basically been kidnapped by humans. She was a street cat and now she's <laughs> yeah. been kidnapped. And she's always want, wondering and, and overthinking, you know, what does it mean to be captive? And is it better to be safe and warm and fed than to have the freedom? Was she a street cat? Is that how she came to you? Yeah, she was. Um, we have some friends that live in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn and mm-hmm. um, they noticed in the well they're on the first floor and uh, they have this little backyard area and uh, there were some strays that would come back there and you know they were cat people so so they would feed the strays and um, if they could catch them they would you know bring them to um, a shelter but they like noticed that there was a litter of kittens one time and so they you know, started scooping them up and, um, you know, bringing them in to get them shots and like rehabilitate them. And, um, so. And spay and neuter. We hope spay and neuter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good. Good. That's very important. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so in that litter was uh, Penny and her sister. So, you know, we, we took them, we were just moving into a new place and, 
um, uh, the building a lot of stuff, cats. So, so uh, we, boss, you know, Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn is is very cat centric. There's a lot of um, sort of community cat uh, condos that have been set up by people. There's a lot of spay, trap, mm-hmm. neuter, return, where the cats are all, you know, people have cr- created sort of homemade shelters for them, and they feed them, and they water them, yeah. and they're very much a part of the community in a way that's very touching, I mean, to anyone who loves cats. And you've captured yeah. a lot of of the city and of Brooklyn in the book, but you're uh, now you're living in Boston, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we moved to Boston. What is different there, cat wise, that you're aware of, if anything? Are there are there community cats that are looked after in in enclaves of the city, as far as you know? Um, not as far as I know. I mean, I think in yeah, maybe in like Jamaica Plain, uh, which is um, one of the neighborhoods. Um, I, I believe there's something similar there. Um, there's there's a really great animal hospital there, um, the um, ASPCA. The Angel and, Memorial, or um, is that a different one? Yeah, yeah. That's an, yeah, that's yeah, that's an incredible hospital, yeah. Yeah, so I think they're involved with something, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I can't really speak to that. Right, but, no, underst- know, that's, understandably. That's where, that's where we take, yeah, I mean, that's where we take our cats when, when they need When they them. need it. So at, at yeah. one point, Penny escapes in the book. She, you know, she's musing mm-hmm. and she's a dark, brooding sort of girl thinking about the meaning of everything. And your depictions of her thought process are so wonderful, just so fantastical. So did she ever escape yeah. or do Thanks. you just imagine what it would, how she would feel about escaping and getting back to her old life and freedom? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, she, she has not escaped. Um, she does wander out into the hall. A little bit, but she's she's very cautious, and um, you know, we'll we'll let her like walk down the hall, but she's very much, you know, a homebody. I think. Thank God. Um, Thank so, goodness. Yeah. Although <laughs> yeah. her escape is hilarious, and it's and I, I guess because you are a cartoonist in the the highest mm-hmm. sort of artistic sense. And grew up around cartoons. Oh, when she you. has ideas, when she has emotions, there's all these explosions of colors and lines and swirls, and and it's 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 incredibly engaging to somebody who's very verbally oriented, which is me, or just words oriented. I really had trouble with graphic novels until yours, even Mouse, that's so famous. Um, it, and mm-hmm. I'm very interested in Holocaust literature, and I've read almost everything I think that there is to read, at least in English. I really, I, wow. it was too hard for me, not because of the subject matter. It just was too much visually. And yet yours, because mm-hmm. of the way the pages are divided up and the colors and and the thought balloons and the verbal balloons, it was very engaging, mm-hmm. and I thought this is why people love cartoons. It's a whole world. It's like reading and going to the cinema, kind of. I mean, it's it, you. You oh, had me thanks. understand graphic novels, or appreciate it, or enjoy it in a way I've never been able to. So, I really think that's wow. a, an enormous, a, an enormous accomplishment. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge compliment. Um, you know, I'm I'm really. Uh, grateful. <laughs> well, I'm really grateful to you to, because yeah. you've you've opened a portal for me. You know the way Penny opens portals for herself, <laughs> and I hope that that it will for other people, not just cat lovers but art lovers too, just to see how art can be used in a very personalized way and 
And in the same way that anybody reading a book with just words in it, mm-hmm. has a different experience of it than the person sitting next to them. That's the nature of it. It's all in your imagination. I think that, that right. your style of writing, and I'm calling it painting, but of course it's drawing, allows each person sure. to bring their own kind of experience of it to it. So it becomes a very immersive experience. How long does it take you, kind of a dopey question, but I am really interested. How long does it take you to draw Mm -hmm. each of the, I'll call them squares? Some pages have 12 squares. Some have just the one. Some have four or six. It has so much variety. But for example, there's Mm -hmm. a fly on one page. And the fly buzzes all across the page. And there's squares, beautiful kind of gouache, colorful watercolors across the page. And one of the squares Mm -hmm. is a drawing in color of a fly. And it's very mm-hmm. realistic. It's like botanical drawing. How long does that take? Just that one square? Um, maybe like an hour. Um, for like or, or or less for like the fly. I'm really you know, it's yeah, it's just it just depends. Um you know, I I I'm I'm pretty good at this point where I can knock out like a full page in about 10 to 15 hours. So, you know, probably like two days of work. Wow. Um, well, yeah. that's, that's, it, that is actually a whole lot of work. It's, it's chock full. It's many, many pages with many, many drawings. So it's what <laughs> yeah. I thought a long time, even mm-hmm. with feeling proficient and comfortable. And I mean, how many do you throw away? Do you do one and crumple it and put it in the wastebasket like the old-fashioned, you know, pictures they used to show of somebody? I don't like that. I don't like that wing on the fly. Does it start all over, or do you have an eraser? How does it work? Oh yeah. Well, I I, I start off, um, you know, drawing the whole thing in uh, pencil. So, um, or actually, like even before that stage, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do like really rough sketches. Um, you know, I'll break down what the story or the joke's going to be. And then I'll use that as, as a guide, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do like almost stick figures of, you know, where oh, cool. I want the, you know, like, like how the composition is supposed to be. And then I'll take that and then, um, you know, I'll, I'll do some sketches from live or um, I'll even take some uh, like reference photographs, Really, to, you know, so like, so give me an idea of like how it looks. And then I'll use that as like the basis for like the final drawings. So then I'll do like really detailed uh, pencil drawings. Uh, actually, I'll I'll do all the all the lettering first because it's all hand lettered. So my like that's God. really important. To, that's your handwriting. You know, that's your beautiful handwriting. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like everything's everything in the book was done by hand. My lord. So. It's pretty yeah. amazing. <laughs> uh, when you do a New Yorker cartoon, I mean that I guess the the, the highest rung to the, to the rest of us, the lay public of cartoon artists, is the oh, New Yorker sure. or Playboy. A friend of mine yeah. who lived for a long time in Sag Harbor and in the city uh, was the cartoon editor of Playboy magazine, and she referred to oh, really? all who of that. Um, I'm she died young and terribly. I'll get, think of her name in a moment. It's gone. Fl- Plum out of my head. Her husband's a wonderful screenwriter, her widower. Mm-hmm. And um, she would always refer to the cartoonist as her artist. I'm going to meet my artist. Mm-hmm. I have you know, lunch with my artist. And it was the first time I understood that 
you know, we think of cartoons as just something that was in the funny papers, if you're old enough to remember the funny papers, and you never really stopped to think where it came from. Maybe we thought of Charles Schultz. <laughs> right. Well, we didn't think of him really as an artist. It was more creating a world that we could enjoy. Um, but I, yeah. I think that the idea of you being artists and creating something and, and then, of course, capturing an idea with one caption, but a funny idea or a, or a politically um, interesting idea is something that, that mm -hmm. isn't – now, of course, I'm just racking my brain for what her name was. I'll think of it. I'll mention oh, it in the podcast. Sorry. She was a great – no, I'm sorry <laughs> that I brought her up without thinking of what her name was. Just a, a wonderful lady and a great mentor to me as a writer. She – would read manuscripts of, of book ideas that I was working on and, and did that for her husband with his screenplays. And she had a number of, of people who were graphic artists, i.e. cartoonists and writers that she would do that for. And it's, it's I just think mm -hmm. that you you exemplify what that art is in this in this book. And it's just utterly delightful. And it's it's also one of those books you can dip into at any time. You can read the whole book little by little or all in one gigantic gulp. But also it's sort of like you mm -hmm. open the book on any page and these drawings are each so beautiful in and of themselves that they they stand alone as just something to admire and enjoy separate from the whole book and the narrative and, and getting to know this wonderful, lucky cat who has such a great <laughs> life with you and is so well understood. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's mm -hmm. great. It's, it's wonderful, Carl. Are you planning a, a oh, book about, about Pepper or Pepper doesn't get a book? Oh yes. Yeah. That is yeah, the uh, sequel uh, is hopefully forthcoming. Um, oh, I've, I've worked up about 30 pages and um, it's going to be all one story and Pepper uh, there's like more to Pepper than than uh, meets the eye, I'll say. So, <laughs> well, this is <laughs> but, this but is great. Idea... <laughs> Something to look forward to now that you've indoctrinated me and, and invited me into the world of graphic novels. I I can't wait to at least to be a reader of of Carl Stevens' graphic novels. Thank you for being here. Thanks for this beautiful, beautiful book, and also for plumbing the depths of the heart, mind, and soul of a cat so that people who always wondered will now know what they are thinking and it will surprise you. Thank you, Carl. Oh, thank you, Tracy. This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a privately owned farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using animals raised on their own farm. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago where they are still making natural pet food. You're here with my co-host, Carol Borden, a veteran trainer who founded and runs Guardian Angels Medical Service Dogs. The companion dogs she raises prove every day what we believe. All dogs can be good dogs. We believe dog training starts with people training. We're here to help you understand and communicate better with your own dog and bring out the good in him or her. Carol, once before we had a conversation about what seems to have gone wrong with President and Jill Biden's dog, Major, at the White House. And since that time, I wrote a blog about it. And since that time, the dog was not, in my opinion, I'm curious to know your opinion, was not managed, handled, or understood properly. So they brought him quickly back to the White House where he had an elevated and escalated, a worse incident in, from what one can tell from the news. So um, I'd like your thoughts on the, a situation where you have a three-year-old 
apparently purebred from the looks of him, beautifully bred German Shepherd dog who two years ago, not two weeks ago, not two hours ago, was adopted from the Delaware shelter by the Bidens and brought home to live with their 12-year-old German Shepherd dog who they bought as a puppy many years before. And surely he had some kind of training. And the Bidens were both away during the the campaigning and then home a lot during the campaigning. And then the dog moves into the White House and barks and lunges at a number of people, apparently. And then they call it nip. But he put his mouth open with his teeth on some part of a Secret Service agent's body and was immediately moved back to the home, the president's own personal home in Delaware, where without the Bidens and not in the White House, he was presumably retrained or trained and then immediately brought back to the White House immediately like a week. And while walked on a leash outdoors on the White House lawn, bit, again, they called it nipped, but when dogs open their mouth with their teeth and and bite down, less pressure is better. But he did that to a park service person working in the garden. When you read all that, what were some thoughts that you had about the situation? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, Tracy, I was really shocked to find out that he was back at the White House so quickly. Yes. Because to really make sure you have... Uh, done the training. And in this case, it's not about heal and sit. It's about desensitization and socialization. Yes. Yes. And that takes some time. And not only does it take time to make sure it's going well, but you have to raise those levels of desensitization and socialization gradually yes. and in different locations until it is what we call proofed and that they are steady and able to handle um, whatever external stimuli are going on, that they handle it appropriately. And until then, they should not be returned to the same situation that provoked an issue to start with. You know, it's my um, limited knowledge on this, but I had never heard of this dog causing any problem. Uh, Apparently, he came from the shelter into their home environment, made all the appropriate adjustments and did very well. Yes. And unless there's just something I don't know about. It wasn't until they actually took him out of that environment, which for him was obviously a secure, comfortable place. He had his routine. And they totally shook up his world. And so not only did the first incident take place, but now a second incident, which let me say, this is not the dog's fault. This is not um, a predisposition of the breed. Uh, I personally um, have 350 German Shepherds working as service dogs in public across the entire United States. And we have never had a dog bite, and we are in our 11th year. So it's not the breed. It is the environment. It is the people that don't read the signals coming from the dog. You know, is he feeling stressed? Was he starting to pant more? Was his head on a swivel looking at everything? These are things that people forget to pay attention to. And when you stop paying attention, you are no longer receiving communication from the dog. And and for an awful lot of people, they're just not trained to read that communication. Okay, and so, so, so I, that, I that, that's very well put. But let's also add that Major gave much more information than that prior to the first bite. We'll just call it a bite, nip. It doesn't matter that he 
attacked, it doesn't matter which verb we use, that he did this behavior that was supposedly never had happened before and is not something that German shepherds do. In the Nazis in Hitler's Germany and the American police uh, back when there were race riots, unfortunately somewhat a little bit today too, but not so often, used dogs as attackers of people. But that is not in their nature. They're a herding breed. They're a protective breed. That is not their go-to behavior. It has to be trained into them, not out of them. So I just want to remind you and everybody else that as it was reported – Major, before the first so-called incident, had many minor incidents. He was letting them know, I'm barking, Mm -hmm. I'm lunging, Uh I'm showing I don't want these people around me. I don't want to be in whatever this physical space is. I'm trying to keep them away. Whether he felt threatened Mm -hmm. or felt threatened on behalf of the president, what the point is that everyone ignored it. So the things you're talking about, the subtle body language – all the behavior of stress in a dog. This that's why you never ever tell a dog not to growl. You always let a dog yeah. growl because the dog is telling you it's a warning. I'm telling you I'm uncomfortable. Keep that child away from my bone. Keep that other dog mm-hmm. away from my dish. And we have to deal with that. We either respect it and give them a safe space or we teach them, as you said, over a period of time that these things are not a threat. We show them to them little by little in increasing amounts that they can tolerate. And when they start to get that reaction again, whatever it is to the thing that is aversive to them, we back off. We don't send send them back into the war zone when they're – when they're not doing well in it. To them – to him, that's a war zone. So who are the people that call themselves dog trainers that said, okay, sure, for 80 bucks an hour – or even free, because I'll get a lot of press for this. I'll take your dog back to Delaware to the quiet, comfortable, safe haven that this dog had known his whole life with this family. And I'm going to teach him what? I'm not going to have a whole bunch of Secret Service agents and 44 assistants holding clipboards running around. I'm going to take him to the environment which never provoked a problem, as you said. And that's going to mm-hmm. teach the dog absolutely nothing except for, oh, thank God, I'm back where I'm comfortable. Now I'm going to throw you back in the deep end, which is go back to the White yeah. House. I mean, well, what kind of thinking or idiocy or ignorance? And I'm just going to use those words because I think they've set this dog up <laughs> for failure. And I, I'm mad well, at them. Well, and you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say. They are not setting this dog up for success. And this is not the dog's fault. This is a breakdown on the human's part for not recognizing um, the scenario that is triggering the behavior and working it into baby steps to where you can desensitize it and make him steady. And, you know, if it... If he has um, a disposition such that he's never going to be steady with it, then that's a whole different issue. But I don't believe enough effort has even been put into going through the paces and the time involved to be sure that he is properly desensitized. There's so many positive things that could be done to change this dog's framework of thinking. And I don't hear about any of those details. All I hear is that he nipped someone again or he bit someone right. again. And, you know, how come the guy out there wasn't armed with a ball in his hands to throw the ball to the dog to turn it into a positive experience or have some liver traits, you know, to turn it into a positive experience so the dog would go, oh, he's not a bad guy. 
you know, so right, and this I'm dog was. I, we aren't hearing about what what your basic one on one of a decent dog trainer would do, which is turn mm-hmm. the, the clock back, just like in those old fashioned movies where the calendar pages flip forward or backward. We flip the calendar pages back to a situation. Let's call it in the White House, a physical situation. Maybe it's in the residential rooms where the dog seems okay, and we let one housekeeper walk in. And we either have the dog on such a perfect downstay that he doesn't budge or he's on a leash. And if that dog mm-hmm. isn't comfortable with the housekeeper walking in that room, yes, we have liver treats and we teach the dog when we see from body language that the dog's uncomfortable with this person, known or unknown, it's irrelevant, coming into the room. Mm-hmm. We give, we get their, the dog's attention on us with the excellent liver treat. We get him to pay attention to us. And we thank him for not having a reaction towards that other person. That's that's like really baby steps. That's not taking him down yep. to the main floor and being loose. What disturbed me was how disrespectful they were of the level of this dog's discomfort that they brought him back and then took him outside on a leash, a totally different situation than being loose. I was assuming it was loose in the White House in the rooms, which they always refer to the West Wing as cramped and crowded. And when we all saw the show, The West Wing, it was cramped and crowded. So here he is outside on a lawn and he's on a leash. So he goes towards, I doubt the Park Service person came over and wanted to pat him. Maybe she or he did. I don't know. But this would not seem to be a similar triggering situation. The dog is already so amped about being in discomfort (laughs) and being stressed that everything, it's like when you have allergies and first you have allergies to pollen. Eventually you have allergies to anything airborne. You're just, everything Mm -hmm. is a trigger. So let's talk about. You, you, we're going to talk, you know, in some of our shows in Good Dogs about the extraordinary breeding and training you do of your medical service dogs. But once in a while, you'll take a dog from a shelter or you work sometimes with a, with someone's pre-existing dog. When you start working with a dog and that dog seems to have a problem with someone coming towards them in a wheelchair or on crutches or even with a hat and a pipe, what do you do to see if you can desensitize that dog? and get them comfortable in their own space? Well, the very first thing I do when we are presenting a new scenario to a dog, I'm reading the dog. I couldn't care less, you know, about the person coming over in the wheelchair. I'm reading the dog's response and reaction. And the moment I see a change in muscle tone, tail set, ear stance, um, panting, all the things that tell you what a dog is thinking, I'll immediately stop that person. We yes. do not want to add any more pressure right. until he is desensitized and comfortable. We turn it into a very positive situation. If the dog is ball-driven, we'll give the person in the wheelchair a ball to talk nice. for him nice. or some liver treats for mm-hmm. him to walk up and take from the individual. Maybe we just walk him around in circles in his own comfort zone. We don't force him to be close to the wheelchair right. until he chooses to. Um, So everything is a baby step uh, with what we do based on what the dog is telling us. Other dogs, they might go right over and step right up on the wheelchair and never give it a second thought. But you have to treat each of them as an individual and read what's going on in their mind, just not have a human expectation with no foundation. That's very, very very well described. And none of this 
in my view, although the Bidens are lifelong dog owners, if you've had one dog who was Mr. Perfect, we've all had that dog, not necessarily a heart dog, not the dog you loved beyond and above all dogs, but a dog who never did anything wrong, never always crossed their T's and dotted their I's practically on their own. And then you bring in another dog of a different temperament, nothing wrong with the dog. The dog is just wired differently. You as Uh a, a pleasant but not wildly trained dog owner, just think, well, that other dog will settle down and be just like my older one. And maybe in the home environment, Major was just like Champ. We all love having that older dog as the ambassador who teaches the newcomer, this is when we eat, this is where we eat, this is how we eat, this is where we eliminate, here's where the dog door is, here's what we do when the doorbell rings. And that older dog, if they have great habits, teach them all to the new dog. And if they have bad habits, wow, that's really a problem because now, you know, it's a legacy of bad habits that the owner hasn't dealt with. President Biden's job is not to be a dog trainer. It's to be a dog owner and appreciate the pleasure of it. But he needs to surround himself with better advisors, just like the advisors that he has for political things. He's hoping to choose the very best people because he can't know every single thing about all the things he has to deal with and make decisions about. So when when people read someone like Caesar Milan, who is able to get on Fox News, apparently, and make his comments, and he says that all dogs in shelters are there because they had issues. Boy, do I take issue with that. Let me just say, <laughs> no, they don't. The people had issues, and they didn't have the That's time, correct. the patience, or the energy or desire to either fix the issue they, the human, set in motion, or just deal with normal dog behavior. This dog was nine months old when he was adopted. So maybe the usual large dog at six months goes through puberty, gets more rambunctious, is more powerful, Mm -hmm. is more energetic. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say, ah, that's not the cute puppy I started out with. So can you just speak for a moment to the issue of whether dogs in shelters have issues and what the heck do we mean by issues anyway? Listen, dogs wind up in shelters for a lot of reasons. Um, Some of them are behavioral. Some of them are genetically predisposed to either um, being, uh, you know, frightened easily or having health problems. Some of them are there because they were lost. Some of them are there because their families got divorced and couldn't keep them or financial breakdown. There's a lot of reasons that dogs end up in shelters. Uh, What's unfortunate is that about 30% of the dogs are returned within the first two weeks of having been adopted. Wow. So, again, I take that back to the humans. If you are going to adopt a child, not an infant, but maybe maybe a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, you know, um, something comparable. Um, You know, if you adopt a child, do you really think uh, that that child is going to come to you perfectly behave, perfect manners, perfect everything, perfect grades in school? Of course not. If you're going to take on an obligation like that, you need to be fully prepared to get the counseling that you need, um, any any kind of training that you need to deal deal with different behavioral issues that that child That's might right. come with. That's right. A dog is no different. The difference is a dog can't really tell you um, if you're not reading his body language until he's already acted out inappropriately. Right. And what is inappropriate? Is inappropriate in a dog's world or is it inappropriate in man's world? And there's a huge division there. It's part Mm -hmm. of what I teach in my uh, college curriculum that, um, you know, we have dragged dogs through um, the evolution of civilization for centuries. And we think so many things are bad that they do, but they're actually very natural things. 
So we have to read what's going on with this dog when we adopt them and bring them to our home. And instead of going, oh, no, this dog's, you know, he's right. tearing up my slippers and he's peeing on my floor. Uh, no, he's going back to the shelter. Right. Well, what did you think? Right. Or barking <laughs> at the door. Or, gee, he wants to right? run a lot. He has all this extra energy. That's another reason that large breed dogs... Are, are, are relinquished. Oh, he's uh, too much trouble. Mm-hmm. Too, that dog's hyper. No, mm-hmm. he's just a healthy, normal dog. Carol, we've run out of time, Probably but I, I just want to, it's really important that people, you know, learn from this. It's a good teachable moment for all of us. We wish Major well. I don't think he's real comfortable in the White House. And if anybody knew what they were doing, maybe they could get him comfortable. But for the most part, I just want us to all understand it's not because he was a shelter dog. It's not because he's a German shepherd. He just got put in a situation that didn't feel right to him and no one's helping him in the right way. Thank you so much, Carol Borden. You're correct. Thank you, Tracy. This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food privately owned by two women who make cooked dog food frozen in pouches shipped directly to your home. The show is also supported by Earth Animal Holistic Pet Wellness Products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. My next guest is Kenda Summers. She's a specialist in pet grief loss, and her book is called Healing Solutions for Pet Loss, Goodbye is Not Forever, The Roadmap to Finding Love and Light Again. Kenda, thanks for for your devotion to the cause of people who, for whom the grief over losing a pet is just sometimes crippling, but also for the rest of us that just have a certain amount of grief and guilt and we're stuck It's a wonderful book that you've written, and you also have a Facebook group where you invite people to come and share their pain, their loss, and also support each other. So well done. Thank you, Tracy. And and I really appreciate you having me on here. The one thing that I found when I created first off the Facebook group, because that was kind of originally where all my ideas came together to do something, was... I lost my heart dog back in 2017, and what I found is that there wasn't a lot of support for pet loss, but I never thought at that point that I would go on and kind of do anything in the grief realm. Right. Um, By trade, I am a hypnotist and an NLP practitioner. So I uh, perform on stage doing stage hypnosis. No kidding. Oh my goodness. Yeah, really? kind, of, kind of my thing. Wow. So, you know, we gather a group of people and we have a lot of fun and, and it was always important to me to bring laughter and light to people, you know? Yes. Take them a kind of away from the drudgery of, of things and, and make them smile and forget about the, the bad stuff in their lives. Um, I'm also a clinical hypnotist. So when I'm not doing performing on stage, I'm seeing people at my office to help them with weight loss issues, stress, anxiety, overcome smoking problems, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so as, as I was kind of, you know, pulling myself together from, from losing my heart dog tragically at uh, two years of age, I decided one day, all of a sudden, you know, why not put everything that I have kind of in my toolbox together and form this Facebook group? Because I bet you there's other people out there that have lost a pet that just don't know where to go, don't know what to do with all that sadness. Right. 
So I started the Facebook group and, you know, you kind of open it up and you invite family and friends and kind of see where it goes. And, and it, it took off from there, to be honest with you, Tracy, it took off from there. And I was kind of like, okay, so what do I do with this now? I've got, right. I've got these people that need help and they're kind of in the group, but what do I do? And I thought, you know what, Kenda, you're the hypnotist. So just, just do your stuff. So I started bringing special people onto the Facebook group that we could interview and would just kind of uh, lend a message to, to the people who are hurting so much that, that there's hope for them. Um, the, the biggest thing with grief of any loss, to be honest with you, is that we live in a grief illiterate society. So when you lose um, somebody that you love or something that you love, like a pet, society just wants you to get on with things. Right. You know, they just want you, okay, um, it's been a week. Um, you know, we kind of stood by your side, but when are you going to come over and, and uh, play scramble again? Right. Or when are we mm-hmm. going to go out for pizza? Mm-hmm. But, but they don't realize that our life, like when you, when you suffer a loss, your life has forever changed. And, and part of it Your is life. that we need to actually stop and feel that, experience it rather mm-hmm. than repress it. I, I think we do live in a sort of, at least in the United States, and in a very different way, but even more repressed in, in Great Britain, societies that are puritanical by their nature. You're not supposed to express yeah. big emotions of any kind, but certainly not grief. Just suck it up, stiff upper lip, and get on with yep. it, as you said. Um, and, you know, it's funny you said a week later, let's have pizza, because if you look at at least the Jewish part of the Judeo-Christian um, heritage, uh-huh. they have a seven days. I think it's seven days. Maybe it's eight of sitting Shiva. So for those days, everyone is expected to come over, even on a daily basis, and greet you at your house and bring food or uh-huh. receive food. And then at the end of those seven days, you're done. So You're that done. goes way yeah. back, you know, to our to yeah. our kind of uh, Western heritage or tradition. And maybe it's easier with grandma because everyone has a grandma and everyone has some positive feelings about grandma. But really uh-huh. that, that level of grief or a much deeper one about a dog or a cat, you even have some stories about horses in there. That's just yeah. inappropriate. Even if other uh, people oh. around you love their pets, the, the the depth of grief is not acceptable socially and and distressing to the person experiencing. Because, like you said, illiterate, we haven't been taught how to feel grief, how to deal mm-hmm. with it, how to how to grow from it, right? Absolutely. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful? I always thought there's two classes that the kids should have mandatory in school. One of them should be public speaking. I see so many people, Tracy, that are terrified to get up in front of their peers and and just say a speech or or even to go into their boss and ask for a raise. You know, yes, we we just were terrified of doing that. And the second thing is grief, teaching people empathy, teaching people that it that it's okay to cry, um, boys, girls, right? You know, and and telling them that it's okay to have a broken heart. You're you're not going to have that broken heart forever, but if you suppress those feelings, oh my goodness, that's where the danger lies. That's where we can become sick physically. Um, That's where the next time something happens in our life, because grief is is not just the loss of a human or a pet. 
grief can be the loss of a job, loss of a friendship, yes. uh, loss of a relationship. You know, there's there's so many things that, that grief is. And God help you if you push all those feelings down the next time you suffer a loss. It's, it's going to be like volcanic. You're, you're going to be a mess and kind of be sitting there in the corner wondering what's wrong with you. And why there's is, nothing wrong with you. Right. And why has it hit you twice as hard? Well, exactly. it's a kind of PTSD. So I want to ask you something about your yeah. hypnosis. If, sure. if tra traumas, childhood traumas, even the trauma of growing up in a household where you were told not to feel sad or sorry for yourself mm -hmm. or hurt or, or depressed... I grew up in a house like that. You're supposed to just be cheerful. Yeah. So if you repress that along with it, a lot of other stuff gets stuffed down. Are those right. the sort of things that hypnosis can unlock? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's funny because we don't realize, I, I tell people that the best hypnotists in the world were actually our parents. Wow, that's cool. They, yeah. Think of the imprinting they did on us, good and bad. Right. Yeah. Um, they're they're the ones that are telling us. Um, I mean, we, we learn grief from a very early age. We learn it from our parents. So what was it like in your house when grandma or grandpa died or you know what I mean? And sure. aunt or an uncle died. How did how did you guys go through that? So as you get older, you bring all of that with you to the table. And then that's that's how you grieve. So it's it's really interesting when we kind of delve back into childhood and we see a lot of things that were done to us as kids by our parents, not intentionally. I, I don't think any parent out there has, you know, the the script book on, on how to be a good, good mom or dad. You know, I, I think every parent does their best, um, but but that can affect us as adults. And, and grief, let's say your, your childhood puppies run over, that whole idea mm -hmm. of, oh, I'm sorry, sweetie, but listen, I'll get you another one. That's one of the yeah. things that you talk about a lot in, in the book, which is when people say to those who are grieving, either superficially or deeply about the loss of a dog or cat, well, you can get another one. That really always feels like a slap in the face. It makes the, oh the grieving gosh. person so angry because you're not hearing yeah. or acknowledging how bad I feel. And I don't want a cookie right. or a, you know, a lollipop to cover yep. up the pain because the pain is real. Not, and I wonder not gonna what, make it better. in your Facebook group, how often do you have people who many weeks and even months down the road from the loss of a pet are still, I'm going to say crippled by it, just really locked up by it, can't function properly in their human life, and certainly don't want another animal in their life. And yet that's not really maybe the best way for them to recover. So how many people are at that level? Well, you know what, Tracy, to be honest with you, okay, there's two things that, that I want to tell you about that question. First off, some of the people in the group will tell you quite honestly that losing their pet hurts more than when they lost their mom yep. or their dad. Yep, people say because that this often. Is, this is their, yep, this is their buddy that they're with 24 hours a day. And the second thing, I have people that have, that have pushed that grief down. So I offer this kind of unique thing called grief school where people come um, and do online virtual 
kind of journaling for 30 days. That's There's great. kind of a lesson a day. Great. And then we meet um, two times a week via Zoom. And, and I've got people who, their grief, they lost their pet seven years ago. And they didn't realize how much it impacted them. They just got on with life. You know, society says you've got to get up and I mean, not very many um, jobs will give you time off because you've lost your pet. I, right? I would say none, probably. Yeah, there are a few. Believe it or not, there are a few that that will recognize it and treat it just like a human loss, but they're very few and far between. So you get you get back into the grind of things and and whatnot, and you don't realize, as I said, until that next grief hits you, how much you're hurting and how unfunctionable you become. And so, one of the things that you talk a lot about in the book, and and people that have written or called into the show, my shows over the years often talk about guilt. And I'm a little confused by it because I really am probably on the other extreme. I view euthanasia of a suffering oh, pet of any age as gosh. a great gift mm-hmm. and, a, and mm-hmm. an act of extreme kindness. And I envy the animals that we can offer it to since we can't offer it to people yes. who often have dreadful suffering ends. So people, however seem to be, and this is my much more limited experience than yours, but although you talk a lot about guilt in the book, guilty about having made the humane decision to end their pet's life because of the quality of the pet's life. Is that the main reason that you find for guilt? That and did I wait too long? Oh, right. Did right. Mm -hmm. Did I go in too soon? You know, if if I could just try this, you know, somebody told me or read right. somewhere about this, this special medicine, if I just gotten that medicine, could maybe I've gotten a few more months. Right. Um, even even the guilt of an accident, like like in my in my case, when I, when I lost my girl, um, it was my partner kind of um, teasing her. And, you know, uh, come on, let's go outside, let's go outside, there's a squirrel. And she went racing outside, and he opened the door, and just by chance, a rabbit jumped out from underneath the porch. She took off after the rabbit, and an 18-wheeler hit her. Mm-hmm. Horrible. So I, I have the guilt of why didn't I say something when I knew he was teasing her? Right. I should have said, you know, sure, sure. not now. Don't be doing that. Something could happen. Um, he has the guilt of opening the door and, and teasing her. Like there's so many. Uh, right. Guilt is such a huge thing, yeah. Tracy. It's such a huge thing. What a beautiful thing you do. Well, you know, it's, I, I must say, when you bring that up, I lost a dog that I was very close to because God, and when my mother was near the end of her life and in a hospital, mm-hmm. and that summer, I went for some period of the summer to Europe, and Falstaff had nearly died from distemper. I somehow nursed him back, which apparently is highly unusual, and he was a Bedlington Terrier, okay. and uh-huh. my boyfriend's family took him for the six or eight weeks that I was abroad. And Charlie had him in Central Park, the part of Central Park that's Dog Hill, where all the dogs run free. And Falstaff knew Charlie really well and and was Mm -hmm. very obedient. But an Afghan hound off the leash chased him into Fifth Avenue and he got wiped out by a cab. And there's my poor boyfriend, you know, with his girlfriend's dog now dead. And of course, I... I thought even as a teenager, I thought, well, I should have told Charlie, don't let him off the leash because he's not really, quote unquote, yours. But, you know, I see what you mean. 
there can always, I mean, a friend of mine's husband ran over the dog in the driveway. He was a deaf, you know, pug. It can happen. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of reasons to feel guilt. And guilt is, of course, really crippling too. One of the things that we just have another couple of minutes, but one of the things you say in the book that I think is fabulous, that's kind of the opposite of feel your feelings, find a support group, go to your Facebook page, which I'll put a link to with the podcast of this show, is if you feel stuck with a a last image of a dog or a cat when they were suffering, when they were at the vets or, you know, wherever they were really at the end of their life, and that image keeps coming back to you, you have a, a little trick in the book, which I think is well worth reading about any information or imagery that's really distasteful. It's just you tell yourself, stop, like a stop sign. Stop thinking about yeah. that. Push that push that negative thing out of your mind. No, don't push bad feelings out of your heart or soul, but stop having imagery that makes you feel bad. And I think that was really valuable. That's that's a hypnosis trick too, Tracy. Ah. And and when and when you so when you have any kind of a loss in your life and you're looking back on that last moment. First off, where are you? You're you're in the past. When you're in the past, you're you're, right. you're not grieving your loss, right? You're you're focusing on on that right. past moment. And was was your relationship with your pet not more than just that last moment? Right, right. Yeah, and that's you know, a, that's a really good point. And yeah. and I I've I've been I've stuck there with one dog Teddy who who took 3 days to die slowly at a specialty hospital where the internist made a series of bad decisions and choices. And so my last vision of him was blown up on steroids, you know, barely able to breathe. And that's, and I oh, pushed gosh. that out of my mind. But it's funny how strong right. those last images can be and how we have to be vigilant against them. We oh. have run out of time, Kenda, but your book is wonderful. And, and it's got wonderful, lots of, lots of great stories of people's loss, but also their love for that pet. Healing Solutions for Pet Loss. Goodbye is Not Forever, The Roadmap to Finding Love and Light Again. Kenda Summers, you've done a wonderful a wonderful task for all of us. Thank you so much for this book and for your Facebook group and for your online grief counseling. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tracy. It's just been a real pleasure to be here with you today and your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>